Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Karen Kingsbury is perhaps the best-known author in Christian fiction, and her novels featuring the Baxter family have been quite popular. She and son Tyler Russell have crafted a book about the family for younger readers. You'll find out more ahead. Then, she was a Planned Parenthood director who left the abortion industry as she recognized the truth about abortion. A movie about her life is coming up later this year. You'll be hearing from Abby Johnson ahead. And with renewed emphasis on decluttering prompted by a Netflix series, Joshua Becker of Becoming Minimalist offers biblical perspective on our possessions. And on this edition of The Intersection... John Gordon is a leadership trainer and motivational speaker. He's also an author who has worked with teams such as the Clemson Tigers and Los Angeles Rams. In his latest book, he tackles the topic of teamwork. You'll find out more about his story and how faith is integrated into his messages. Also, Tim Mahoney, who developed the Patterns of Evidence film a few years ago, is back to take a closer look at Moses and his authorship of the first five books of the Bible in his latest documentary. More information is ahead. Finally, from the website The Stream, contributor Jennifer Hartline comments on recent developments regarding abortion legislation in Virginia and the agenda of those who want to expand laws that would lead to more abortion. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Karen Kingsbury is a best-selling author and certainly known for novels featuring the Baxter family. She and son Tyler Russell have put together a new book for younger readers, middle grade readers, focusing in on the childhood experiences of members of the family. It's called Best Family Ever, a Baxter Family Children's Story. Here now are Karen and Tyler. I grew up with five siblings myself, so there were six of us, and that meant a lot of personalities, a lot of adventure, a lot of opportunities to learn some good lessons. Um, And so I, I... you know, these five siblings are also very distinct, and Brooke is the oldest, and she's, you know, smart and sharp and um, kind of an overachiever in academics. Um, Carrie is sweet. She's a, she, she likes to journal. She's, like, a little bit of a, a dreamer. Um, Ashley, like we kind of talked about, she's a little spunky. Um, Luke is, he's, like, he's the only boy. He's athletic, and, he, and you know, he's young in this book, and, and Aaron is a, a reader, so they all kind of have their little thing that they're about, um, and getting to write about about them for for this series is not only fun for me to explore that because, like I said, we all kind of know them so well having grown up with them, but it'll also be fun for for the readers to be able to look back on a life that they haven't read about before, and to introduce it to their children because even though it is for kids, I think it's also for the inner kid and everybody, and there is something exciting, sharing um, this story with the whole family, reading it out loud, whether it's a teacher reading it to a class or um, parent reading it to a child or, or, you know, any sort of combination. It's, it's a great story that's meant to be shared, and I think everybody will see something um, of themselves in these characters and what they go through. One of my favorite moments is uh, Ashley has taken her math book, and she doesn't want to do math. She doesn't like math. She's not good at it. She likes to draw, and that's no surprise. Anyone who knows Ashley, she becomes an artist. So she's taken her math book, and she's drawn little flower blossoms where the answers are supposed to go, and now she's lied about it to her mother. She's got to take it to school. She's going to be in big trouble. She feels like she's carrying sacks of potatoes on her back because she feels so guilty. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, it brings up some really sweet lessons. I mean, we, we you'll, you'll laugh and you'll really feel for her, but you'll feel that poignant place where her parents say, you know, math is not an option. And, and she's feeling like, okay, you want me to be like Brooke. But they're just trying to say, no, you just got to be the best you can be as Ashley in math. We know you're going to be an artist. Like, that's okay, but, you know, you still, you can be yourself, but you still have to hit these certain other things that are not optional. But then there's a really sweet point, and then they say, you know what we always say, you don't lie to someone you love, and you don't love someone that you mm-hmm. lie to. So it's something that we taught our kids when they were growing up, and to have that right there in that moment as Ashley is struggling with having lied to her mom. Uh, you know, we're laughing because she feels like she's walking the plank as she goes to meet with her parents in the dining room, and she can feel the spray of the ocean over her face. Like She's so creative. <laughs> but wow. um, at the end of the day, you know, there's a loving lesson there. What do we learn in this new book, Best Family Ever, about the faith of John and Elizabeth and perhaps other members of the Baxter family? Well, I think I think what we're going to learn about it is that they have an open communication. So when things are not going well, even at the family meeting when Ashley feels the confidence to stand up and say, well, I'm not going. You know, I don't know about the rest of you, but like I'm saying. <laughs> Um, you know, at 11 years old, it's because the parents have built into the family a permission to talk and keeping those open doors. Like when you've got your children, it's so it's so important to make yourself available to talk to them and to hear what they have to say. So yeah, it's not going to be perfect, but I would call a best family ever a, a perfect kind of family is one that can communicate. So if I'm feeling at my lowest point, I have the right, I've already already earned that place. I've already got an open avenue to talk, not just to my parents, but to my siblings. And uh, and that gives us a chance to be able to build in life lessons through Scripture. And when they have their family meetings, uh, you know, Dr. Baxter, John Baxter prays with the family and prays over them. And it stirs in their little young hearts. You know, Carrie and Ashley, we're getting the story through their point of view, uh, alternating points of view. And and you can you hear in their heart as they're thinking like okay that you know I mean God does still like He still loves us He hasn't abandoned us and we're going to get through this somehow. Karen Kingsbury and Tyler Russell here on the intersection. Learn more through the website KarenKingsbury.com. Next up, it's former Planned Parenthood Clinic Director Abby Johnson. Her mind was changed regarding the work in which she was involved. In a recent conversation, she shared elements of her story and discussed her ministry organization, and then there were none, which encourages abortion clinic employees to leave the industry. Also in our conversation, she talked about the film Unplanned, based on her book of the same name. From that recent conversation, this is Abby Johnson. We have helped uh, almost 500, we've helped 480 abortion clinic workers leave the abortion industry, find new lines of life affor- life-affirming employment, and we have helped them uh, come into relationship with Christ. And it's been really beautiful just to witness the transformation of these 480 individuals. Um, we have professional counseling services for them. Um, we have employment help. Really, it's, it's, it's really a comprehensive program for those who do have the desire to leave their jobs and uh, it's been amazing. It's 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 more than what we ever could have expected, but um, that's just God's goodness on display. And um, you know, I think God loves a good conversion story, mm-hmm. and yes. so that's yes. really what He's He's helping to facilitate in the lives of these workers. 
Well, a while back, Abby, you wrote a book called Unplanned. Now this movie is set to come out in a little less than two months. So tell me about your inspiration for the book and why it is that you really wanted to tell your story. You know, I was approached about four years ago uh, by the directors to to do this film, and I never, ever uh, considered uh, you know, turning my book into a film. I mean, no, people usually don't consider that. Um, but we really started praying about it. My husband and I really started praying about it in my family. And we just felt like, you know, this was a way to help bring about more of a societal conversion. You know, this movie is raw. It is honest. It is truth. Um, it, it shows exactly what happens to the baby during an abortion. It shows what happens to the mother. It shows the systemic manipulation of the abortion industry. And I think now in our, in our country, we, we are really longing for truth Mm. and, and, and we're, we're wandering around looking for truth. And this film is going to show that. And I think especially with what we see taking place in some of these states, New York, Rhode Island, Vermont. New Mexico and this legislation, I mean, God's timing is just so perfect because this is really going to expose what happens during an abortion. And I think it's going to be critical in helping to open the eyes of people who are maybe on the fence or maybe don't know a lot about this issue. Well, and your experience with Planned Parenthood, we hear a lot about the news about this, this well, the nation's largest abortion provider. What is it that you want people really to know about Planned Parenthood? Well, you know, people just need to know that they uh, their primary business is abortion. So it's their lowest cost, highest revenue generating item. They sell abortion. They have abortion quotas at all of their clinics, a certain number of abortions that they have to sell. I think for a long time, the thinking was, you know, well, we want to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare. Those days are gone. Um, Now it's really just about accessibility, so access to abortion, no matter the cost, no matter if the woman um, has a perforated uterus during the abortion, no matter if she has an infection, no matter if she dies. Um, at least she had access to abortion services. And we see just more liberal uh, abortion law and messaging uh, surrounding us in the media and, and in society. And so it's really important that we as believers and we as pro-lifers speak up and and we stand for truth probably now more than ever. Abby Johnson here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website abbyjohnson.org. Next, it's Joshua Becker. He is the founder of Becoming Minimalist. He shared from a biblical worldview perspective about possessions with content relative to the book, The Minimalist Home, a room-by-room guide to a decluttered, refocused life. From a recent conversation, this is Joshua Becker. It was interesting to me as I began owning less, and I began finding that I had more money and more time and more energy and less stress and more focus in my life. Um, as I found all these benefits coming to me, I, because I, I, like I mentioned, I grew up in church. Like I knew everything that Jesus said about money and possessions, but for some reason, it's always felt like, this great test of my faith 
to get rid of things or that Jesus wanted me to live this really boring, sacrificial life today, to have treasures in heaven, until I started actually doing what he said and started actually getting rid of the things that I didn't need, even what John the Baptist talked about, getting rid of extra coats and getting rid of extra food. And as I began doing that and I began seeing my life improve and more opportunity to pursue him with my life and, and spend time with my family and make an impact and grow in my faith, um, suddenly it was like, I, I, I guess everything Jesus said was true. Like it, it made sense to me. It, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was an invitation to a better way of living. Well, and obviously it stands to reason that when your mind is not focused as much on your stuff, your possessions, it does give you the opportunity to focus more squarely on him and serving him. And I guess you could say conversely, an abundance of possessions can actually lead to a, well, lack of focus on our Savior. Yes, indeed. And in fact, uh, you know, that was John the Baptist's instruction to the, to the Israelites when they, when they came to him and they said, okay, we, we get it. Uh, the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. What do we have to do to get ready? Uh, everything he told them to do had to deal with physical possessions. He said, get rid of your extra tunics and get rid of your extra food and be content with what you have and don't extort people falsely. Uh, it's very interesting that that was his instruction for him, uh, for them. And I've, I've come to discover that, it uh, number one, because it, it frees us up to, to pursue Christ, um, but the second thing that it does is it, it really forces some introspection. Um, as we begin getting rid of things, we, we wrestle with questions of, why did I buy more than I need? Why is this hard for me to get rid of? Why do I have all this stuff? And I, I think that we learn things about ourselves and we grow spiritually in ways that I don't think I ever would have grown before if I hadn't gone through this process of getting rid of the things that I didn't need, in addition to freeing myself up to follow him um, more closely. Well, no doubt, Joshua, you have this philosophy driven by your biblical worldview to really go minimalist, if you can say it like that. And I would I would dare say that before someone can start taking those steps, he or she has to be convinced that this is the way to go. So what would you say would be one thing that would motivate someone to actually begin to take these steps? Yeah, I uh, I agree that it entirely begins there. Um, oftentimes, when I when I speak on minimalism, one of the first things I'll have the people do is I'll say, turn to your neighbor and make a list. If you were to own less stuff, if you were to own fewer things, how would your life improve? And uh, I have never asked that question to a quiet room. Like they immediately start coming up with oh man, I'd have more money, there'd be less cleaning, I'd have more time available, less stress, um, more opportunity for generosity to emerge in my life. And um, so I I think it starts there, um, that we just take a step back from this um, consumer-driven culture and society that we live in, where we're marketed to every single day, that we need to buy more and more, and just think of the you know, the, the inverse relationship. If I owned less, 
how would my life improve? Um, I, I've, I haven't met anybody who had a hard time uh, making a list of things. Joshua Becker here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website becomingminimalist.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Through the homepage, you'll find the Media Center, marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that Media Center, you can listen to or download the current episode as well as previous episodes of The Intersection Podcast. And when you go to the Meeting House homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. And at meetinghouseonline.info, you can find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn how to download it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. Continuing now with the Intersection Podcast, it's leadership expert and motivational speaker John Gordon, author of the book, The Power of a Positive Team, Proven Principles and Practices That Make Great Teams Great. In our conversation, he shared about different aspects of teamwork, and he discussed how his faith in Christ is integrated into the work he does. Here now is John Gordon. Yeah, I wrote the Energy Bus in 2006, actually baptized in 2006. I came to faith in 2005. Gave my life to Jesus. Oh, wow. Surrendered to God. Uh, Jesus changed my life, changed my heart, changed my soul, changed everything. Created a fertile ground for somehow for me to write this book that wrote wrote me. I wrote it in three and a half weeks. And so people often ask if I have a ghost writer, I must not look smart enough to write a book. (laughs) But I tell them I have a holy ghost writer because the book just poured out of me. And so I wrote the book in 2006, came out in 2007, and that was my breakthrough in terms of the work that I'm doing now because all these leaders and coaches of NFL and college teams started reading this book and then started inviting me to speak. It was just pretty wild how it happened. So over the years, that's grown. But, yeah, the book was the breakthrough, but I would say my biggest breakthrough was giving my life to Jesus. Oh, my goodness. That is great. Now, you have written a book called The Power of a positive team, and we want to talk about some of the material related to it, but give us an idea about the the central focus of this particular book. Well, it's the fact that we are better together, and then together we accomplish amazing things. So we all need a team to be successful, and we are all part of some sort of team. A marriage is a team. A family is a team. We have sports teams and business teams and design teams and product teams, and so This is about what makes great teams great. I've worked with teams now for the past 12 years. So this is what I've learned from working with all of these teams and some of the greatest teams on the planet. And I've learned a lot from them, and I share this framework on how you and your team can become a great team. So it's a set of principles and practices that if you and your team do together, so I encourage teams to read this together and then say, okay, what do we need to do to be a great team? And you put together a plan based on the book. We have an action plan that they can use with it. 
then you're going to become a, a much stronger team. So that's the whole point of the book. It starts with a shared vision and a greater purpose. It's about building a great culture, leading with optimism and belief and staying positive through the challenges. We don't give up because it's hard. So often teams give up because they get discouraged. We have to make sure we prevent the division that sabotages the team. So we have to really deal with the negativity that exists and, and overcome that negativity as a team. And, and then it's about communicating and connecting and committing and caring to develop great relationships that are the foundation upon which winning teams are built. And, and then it's about having the difficult conversations because teams are always striving to get better. So, hey, how can we get better? Let's have these conversations about why we're not being great. It's about positive conflict. Sometimes you have to have conflict. And then it's about making sure that you're positive discontent where even if you're winning and succeeding, you're still looking for ways to improve and grow. I wanted to ask you with respect to this book, as well as the content of your messages, when you have the opportunity to speak, share with me how your faith in Christ actually informs some of the principles that you share. Well, the power of positive leadership, as I wrote it, I measured everything that I wrote up to Jesus and said, is this truth? Did he lead this way? And everything I've written, he led that way. So power of positive leadership is really Jesus' model for leadership, just uh, for a secular world. But a lot of people's faith, as they're reading it, get it, and they see it so clearly. I hear from a lot of them. Power of a positive team, same thing. This is about what makes great teams great. Jesus led a team. He had a team of 12, right? He had one energy vampire on his team, but he had 11, yeah. he had 11 devoted followers and team members. And those people would go on to change the world. And so we see what the power of a team can do. That was the, the ultimate, I call them the ultimate team. So it really informs everything I do. I wrote a book, The Carpenter. I wrote The Seed, which is about finding your purpose. And you can't know your purpose or find your purpose without a relationship with the one who created you for a purpose. So that's a big part of the book. And my favorite book I've written is Training Camp, which is about an undrafted rookie trying to make him the NFL. He gets injured during training camp. And he meets a coach that teaches him the winning habits that separate the best from the rest. But along the way, about three-quarters of the way into the book, he, he realizes he has to find his faith, overcome his fear, in order to truly be his best. And coach, the coach leads him towards that. It's a very powerful message. And I've had a lot of men reach out to me saying, you made me cry, and I think that's mm. a good thing. John Gordon here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, john, J-O-N, gordon.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Tim Mahoney, director and producer of the documentary film Patterns of Evidence, The Moses Controversy, coming to theaters March 14th, 16th, or 19th. He discussed the concept of the movie, the research he did, and some of the conclusions that he presents regarding Moses' authorship of the first five books of the Bible. Here now is Tim Mahoney. Well, at the center of the Moses Controversy is the question today, by, by many mainstream scholars that say that they don't know if Moses existed, and they don't think at all that he wrote the first books of the Bible. They're really basically saying that M- Moses, uh, that if, the, if the, the first books of the Bible were written, they were written maybe a thousand years, as much as a thousand years later. Uh, as, as a story that was put together, not at the time of the Exodus, not at the time of Moses, not as an eyewitness account. But this is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. And not only that, but the Bible references, I think it's uh, at least 40 times, both in the New Testament and the Old, uh, 
uh, references back to the writings of Moses and that Moses wrote. And even Jesus says that Moses, you don't uh, you know know who I am because you don't understand, you don't believe in Moses and the prophets, you don't believe what he wrote. So even Jesus is is talking about Moses. So if today you accept mainstream scholarship, what does that do to the entire Bible? That is the Moses controversy. Mm. What we uncover is the fact that um, the very first, the beginning of an alphabet shows up exactly at the time that the Israelites are in Egypt. That's what this film sh- reveals. But it's not Egyptian. Somebody took Egyptian hieroglyphics and modified them into a, a new form of writing, which was phonetic. And it's the basis of all alphabets today. He existed at a time that was much later than the events about which he was writing in the book of Genesis, for instance. So how do you deal with that in the film? Well, um, we allude to that. We talk about that. Obviously, uh, the family uh, comes down all the way. You know, the, the information would probably have come from Noah. And it goes transcends through this, the family. We don't know what types of writing that they could have used or what they would have used, uh, but uh, the, they would have had an understanding. And there's not to say there wasn't the oral understanding, the oral traditions of the family passed on then through Abraham uh, and all the way through the family. So they would have been gathering this information. So Moses would have known his family history and would have known the history of the world. And then there are things that, that says that God spoke to Moses and told him certain things. And and so I believe it was a mixture of that. And in fact, we in our interviews, we, we explain that, that, you know, Moses wasn't there during creation. He wasn't there during, um, uh, this, you know, during the flood. But he received that information, uh, possibly through a combination of his family telling him what those stories were and, and what that information was, as well as the time that he spent with God. As you set out to really gather this evidence, what are some of the steps that you took? Well, I think you have to know, uh, what does the Bible say? And we could see that the Bible uh, declares that Moses was told to write down these, this information in the book. Number two, it says that the Israelites were, were told to uh, what they had learned, the commands. They were to write the commands that Moses was given on their doorposts and teach them to their children. So one of the things that you'd have to figure out is, well, what kind of writing system was available? And at that time, there was, you know, two forms that people know of. One was hieroglyphics and the other was cuneiform. They were from two different parts of the world. And, and um, uh, But they were very complicated writing systems. So what we knew is that Moses had to have had a writing system that came, that would have been available to him in, at the right time in history, in the right place in history, and that all of the Torah scrolls or the first books of the Bible, which we say Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Jewish Torah, w- were written in Hebrew. Everything that they've ever found, and they were called Hebrews, the, the Israelite people. So it would have to have been a writing system that was like Hebrew. So we look for is it in the right place? Is it at the right time? And is it like Hebrew? But then later on, we discover that not only that, but uh, uh, it almost seems as if it has to be alphabetic. And that's what the investigation starts to look for uh, at that time in, you know, in history. Tim Mahoney here on The Intersection. You can find out more at PatternsofEvidence.com. 
front slash Moses. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Jennifer Hartline, contributor to the Stream website. She shared her response to the attempt to pass sweeping abortion legislation in her home state of Virginia and gave an appraisal of the pro-abortion agenda and its changed rhetoric. Here now from that conversation is Jennifer Hartline. Well, it was horrifying. There's no other word for it. It's absolutely horrifying and demonic that this legislation was proposed. And I thank God that for the time being, it seems to have been tabled, um, but it needs to stay that way. This horrific bill can never see the light of day again. Um, but the, the astonishing part is, too, was uh, the governor's comments the following day when he was asked about it. And he, you know, gave this example of a child that was delivered and, you know, his words were the baby would be kept comfortable while mom and the doctor have a discussion about what to do next, you know, which, which is implicitly saying that, you know, one of the things that might be done next is we still kill the baby. Um, it was astonishing. And the governor, you know, tried to say um, it's terrible, it's shameful that, that people are misrepresenting what I said and, and implying that I said something awful and then, you know, he, he doubled down on that remark. Somebody, mm. re, you know, a reporter asked him, would you like to, uh, you know, clarify what you said? Do you regret saying that? And he flat out said, no, I don't regret saying it, and I'm not taking any of it back. So, you know, he was absolutely suggesting that um, a baby who survived an abortion attempt and had the nerve not to die and was, and was delivered alive, that that child might still be killed um, after delivery. And he doesn't seem to see anything wrong with that or doesn't seem to recognize why that's a horrifying thing. Now you have those that are championing abortion even until the time of birth and perhaps even beyond mm -hmm. that say that somehow abortion benefits women. So respond to that if you would. Yeah, no, it's an important shift in the attitude and in the rhetoric that we're going to be hearing from now on going forward, um, we're going to we're going to be hearing no longer will they speak of abortion as a necessary evil, as some unfortunate thing that, gee, we all would you know really rather not happen. But sometimes it's necessary. They will no longer speak of it in those terms. From now on, it is being talked about as a positive good. Abortion is being presented as a positive moral good in society as a necessary part of the fabric of a free society. That is a really important shift that we're going to see in the rhetoric going forward and in the push toward legislation. It's no longer, you know, gee, we, we wish this didn't have to happen. It's one of those unfortunate but necessary evils. No, no, no. Now it's going to be pushed as a positive moral good. We are quite literally, quite literally now, celebrating the killing yes. of our own children. We're celebrating it and hailing it as a positive good. There's no other word for that except demonic. Well, and Jennifer, we have to be very careful and discerning with respect to these rhetorical shifts that have occurred in our culture. It's, it's really horrifying when you think about it. And it, it wasn't, you, you've heard the phrase, I'm old enough to remember. Well, I'm old enough to remember when you had politicians that said they wanted to make abortion safe, legal, and rare. 
I'm old yeah. enough to remember. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah, and you have politicians that would say, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, mm-hmm. but I believe that this is something that should be determined by the collaboration between a doctor and a woman, and sometimes they would add, right. and their pastor. And, you know, and again, I, I think a lot of this rhetoric was tried, try, you know, they realized that this is something that the general public found to be then and continues to find to be uh, morally abhorrent. But nevertheless, you know, now you don't see that nuance. It's it's basically we are pro-abortion. And now they're trying to find the the rhetoric to make the general culture accept it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We're we're not going to be you know, talking about it with a sad face anymore. Gee, we wish this really didn't have to happen. Those days are over and people have to wake up to that shift in rhetoric, that shift in attitude about it, because it is now being sold to the culture as a positive good, as a necessary thing, that that, that we cannot even be a free society without the so-called right to abortion. People have got to really stop and think about that. Jennifer Hartline here on The Intersection. The website for the stream is thestream.org. Well, we're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Find out more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet through the website faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.